where uh, he's going off by himself uh, the next morning to spend some time talking to his father, which of course is a wonderful example for us to see. But uh, we see in verse 42, when it was day, he departed, went to a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Think about what he's saying there. I must preach the kingdom of God. Why does he say, I must preach the kingdom of God? Why doesn't he say, I must preach about the church? Why doesn't he say, I must preach about the gospel even? Why does he say the kingdom? We want to begin a series today looking at the kingdom of God. And for a number of uh, Lord's Days uh, over this month, and I think stretching into next month, we're going to be looking at this concept of the kingdom of God and what that means. I believe this to be one of the more integral aspects of understanding who God is and understanding what is what we're called upon to do and how we're called upon to be in this life. Because when we think about it, the kingdom of God is something that can be abstract, but it also can be very concrete. Because we're going we're gonna to look at some of those aspects as well throughout this series, but, you know, any of us that spent any amount of time with Brother Aubrey Ballou, if you talked to him at any point about God, there would be a time when he would talk about the kingdom. This was something that in his later years he began to study more and more and gain insight about, and it was something that challenged him. And it's something that I think continues to challenge us today. I think one of the things that we will do with the kingdom, on the one hand, we want to say that every time we see kingdom in the Bible, when you see kingdom, just think church. I don't know if anybody here has been taught that or heard that before. That's an extreme that we get to in this. Another extreme is that the kingdom is completely separate from the church, and there never could be the same thing. Our Jehovah's Witness friends will, will teach things such as that. The truth is it's somewhere in the middle. We have to recognize the distinctions between the kingdom and the church. And, but, but, but what that tells us, too, is that these two things are integrally connected. Jesus says, I must. There's no question about the fact that he has to preach the kingdom of God. That's why he came. That's why he was sent. And so as we talk today, I want to just sort of introduce you about to this concept about the kingdom. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe it can just be something that helps to strengthen what you already know. But maybe this is something that you haven't looked at before. Maybe you haven't considered uh, uh, the, the sheer number of times we see the use of the kingdom throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture. I want to talk, first of all, about how the Bible tells us this story about the kingdom of God. We also want to talk about how this kingdom was foretold. And we want to talk about how God has total rule as king and what that really looks like. We're just talking about some very basic uh, concepts today that hopefully we can stretch out and look further into over the coming weeks 
as we, uh, as we continue to study and look at this. But first of all, the Bible tells the story about the kingdom of God. As we think about the idea of the kingdom, and we'll get into this in terms of rulership, but this is, this is something about the rulership of God. And God tells us about this kingdom in Scripture. Uh, many symbols or parables that God is going to use is going to communicate the relationship that he wants to have with us. That's what the Bible is all about. It's all about getting back to the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. And even more than that, the wonderful thing about that is when you think about Eden, when you think about the situation that Adam and Eve had, we think, wow, that would have been awesome to be a part of. But think about this. We're promised something greater than Eden. We're promised something, uh, even a closer relationship, I believe, than what Adam and Eve had with God. God uses different terms to try to associate with this relationship. He uses the term church. He'll use the term family, temple, vineyard. Sometimes we're called the army of the Lord. All these different aspects come to this, but I really think the most comprehensive term that describes everything about God wants for us is the idea of the kingdom. God wants to be the ruler of our lives. And when we look in the scriptures and we see the term the kingdom, we need to be looking at this. When, we, when you're reading through the Bible on a yearly basis, if you've got a regular daily Bible reading, I encourage you, look for the kingdom. You will see it everywhere. And the reason why I say that is that the kingdom is not a symbol, but it's the reality. You see, all these different things, they're, they're really kind of abstract when you think about it, but they can be concrete. But certainly the idea of we're a temple of the Lord right now, that's an abstract concept. As a Christian, that's hard for us to immediately latch on to because there's nothing readily identifiable. There's nothing quantifiable about that uh, materially, right? But the idea of us being a vineyard, you know, that, that's something that is almost symbolic of what we are. But the reality is the kingdom. Have you ever seen Jesus say in the Gospels that... The church of God is like a kingdom. You don't see that. You don't see Jesus talking about that the kingdom is something that is metaphorical. The kingdom is a reality. Now, there are at least a couple of senses when we think about kingdom. Uh, actually, in the Hebrew, if you look back at the Hebrew, there's two different words used for kingdom. One word has to do with the ruler himself and his power and his authority. The other word in Hebrew uh, maintains or is talking about the land that that king is ruling over, so the people and the land itself. The term basileia meant, uh, used in the New Testament is something actually that includes both of those. And so the context tells us how that term is being used. Either the kingdom can be uh, attributed to the, the rule of that ruler, his authority and his power, or it can be in context of this kingdom. Think about this. The term kingdom of heaven is spoken of by Jesus in the Gospels 30 times, all of them in Matthew, by the way. Twelve of those mentions is concerning, is, is the literal phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. The term kingdom of God is spoken of by Jesus in the Gospels 47 times. And this is just an interesting thing to me. I'm not making a big point out of this, but if you total between both, 
All the times that Jesus uses that phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven in the Gospels, totals up to 77 times. I just thought that was sort of an interesting, I'm not a numerology guy, but, uh, but it's something to think about there. But overall, think about that. And there's more. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even counting the times that Jesus just refers to kingdom without the qualifier. So 77 times throughout the Gospels, Jesus is talking literally about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Shouldn't that tell us that the kingdom is something that's important to, to God, that's important to Jesus? Let's ask ourselves, what is the kingdom? What are we talking about with the kingdom? It helps us to know that the authority, power, and rule is there. When we see kingdom of God, we don't need to be necessarily thinking church, although sometimes they are the same. We need to be thinking the rule of God. The rule of God. A monarchy is going to have one ruler. It's not a democracy. It's not a republic, uh, you know, which includes many voices and opinions, but it is one ruler. And the Bible depicts God's kingdom as multifaceted. There are many different ways, or at least, uh, at least three ways, I think, that we can view and appreciate His majesty and His rule. And those three ways that I would suggest are what I would call the total kingdom, the Christ, excuse me, the kingdom of Christ, and the eternal kingdom. Now, I'm not talking about three separate kingdoms here. Let's understand that first of all. I'm not talking about multiple kingdoms. This is one kingdom. This is one ruler. And this is one uh, scope of his rule. But this is one way possibly to think about it. We'll get to actually a chart on that in just a second. And what we actually mean by these terms, total Christ kingdom and the eternal kingdom. But let's ask, who is the ruler of the kingdom? Of course, God in totality. When we think about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God, they are all rulers. They are all within the scope of this kingdom. But within that scope, the particular persons of the Godhead have special places. And uh, we notice this in Scripture. I, won't, I don't even necessarily have uh, uh, references for this, but we can see it in the reading of the New Testament. Jesus, for example, set the Spirit over the work of rebuking the world. That's what we see in John 16. The idea that Jesus is going to send this comforter. He's going to be sending this Spirit means that there is some aspect of authority there within the scope of the Godhead. The Father set Jesus over the work of creation and over the work of salvation. And so within the scope of the Godhead even, you have this appreciation for ultimately the Father's authority, the Father's kingship, and, and, but yet they are all God. They all rule together. And so when we think about this kingdom, the kingdom was foretold. As we continue to look at this, it was foretold in this way. Its founding was foretold. Genesis 3.15, the, the first messianic prophecy, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God telling the serpent that there's going to be a problem between you and the woman. You're going to have this rivalry. And we see that rivalry, we see that working back at that battle continue all throughout Scripture. Genesis 12, 3, of course, uh, promised to Abraham, and you, all the families of earth, shall be blessed. The seed promise that was shown, that founding of this kingdom. And I know particularly we're talking about Christ's kingdom here. But when we look at Daniel 2, 44, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. 
So the idea that this kingdom that was going to be set up that was forever, it was going to break up all of those earthly kingdoms. Remember, uh, Daniel is interpreting the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had seen all these different forms of these empires. And he's promised that these kingdoms are going to be destroyed, yet God is going to bring about a kingdom that is forever. The nature of this kingdom was foretold. What kind of nature? 2 Samuel 7.13, talking about Solomon ultimately, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But if you look in that passage, it's not just Solomon that's being talked about. And it's really interesting when you think about this because there are some parallels, by the way, between the way that Solomon set up things for the people of Israel and the way that things are set up for the church now. Uh, by the time Solomon built the temple, all that was needed for Israel was to maintain things and to keep following God and serving Him. But of course, that didn't ultimately work out. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 2, please. Isaiah 2. I, I realize I'm moving pretty quickly. That's probably going to be the norm for these lessons because there's just a lot to, to look at, a lot to ponder. And in fact, what we look at with these lessons really will just skim the surface and hopefully will be an encouragement for your personal study. Isaiah 2 and verse 1, I, I, I associate this primarily with, uh, with Pentecost uh, when you think about it. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it shall pass, uh, excuse me, come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This was going to be a kingdom for all mankind. So this nature, this kingdom was not only a, a kingdom of foreverness, of eternity, it's a kingdom for all mankind. And further, it's a kingdom of salvation. Joel 2 and verse 32, It shall come to pass that whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. This happened when Pentecost came. And all these different people from all these different nations came together. And they obeyed the Lord. And they became part of the kingdom, part of the kingdom of Christ that we are in now. The timing of this kingdom was exact. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In Ephesians 1 and verse 8 through 10, we see the idea that everything had to be right for the kingdom to make its appearance. The timing had to be absolutely correct. Uh, determined for knowledge of God, this, this came. We don't have to read... The, time to read the whole passage, but just consider that, this timing of the kingdom. And of course, this coming was expected. We see this all throughout the Gospels, but particularly we see in Luke 3, 15, as the people were in expectation 
Uh, Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And we're told that Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God. Waiting for the kingdom of God. That's an interesting statement because, again, God was in control, but there was something coming. There was this great thing coming that people recognized. Now, let me talk, I mentioned earlier about these three aspects of the kingdom. When we talk about the total kingdom, let's think about this as being everything everywhere. Does God not rule everywhere? In fact, I uh, watched a lesson by Max Dawson last night down at Dallin Road in Texas, and he made the point that, you know, some people talk about is there life on alien worlds, and we'll st- we see articles like that. And I appreciate what he said. He said, well, I don't know, but if there's life out there, they have a ruler, and that ruler is God. That's, that's, that's something where we, we think about that, Everything is under the control of God. But there are distinctions that we can make, right? Within the scope of that total kingdom, you've got the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ that was founded on Pentecost, that Jesus gave his blood to buy that kingdom. And so you've got all the, you know, you've got the total kingdom, all of existence. Within that scope, there's Christ's kingdom. But guess what? That's not going to be it, is it? We know from scriptures that there is going to be a winnowing of that kingdom and that kingdom, that perfected kingdom, is going to be delivered up to the Lord on the final day. You see, it's an interesting distinction to make, by the way, that we can become part of the church but not ultimately be part of the kingdom. That's the distinction that we need to make because this is going to help us. This is going to help us understand the authority of God is all powerful and all controlling. And God has total rule as king, as we'll see in just a second. But just, just to think about that, even you know, someone who is in the world but doesn't obey God, they're still under the authority of God. And it doesn't matter. Someone You use the example of someone who is in an unscriptural marriage and didn't know anything about it. And some people, of course, go, go to the leap to say that if they become Christians, that's all, you know, don't worry about it. You can keep that. I'm sorry. You're still under the kingdom of uh, the total kingdom there. You're still under the authority of God. And the dictates that that, that, that king makes, that's the thing that's really going to help us is that in any situation, if I come across something, a command that God has given, and I say, well, I see what God has said there, but I really want to do this over here. You know what's really going to help us? Do I want him to be my king or not? Do I want him to be in authority over me? And that's the question that we need to ask ourselves. The king has total rule. When we think about the total re- kingdom, creation is the reason for his authority. We get that primarily from passages like Revelation 4.11. In the throne scene, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. Someone says, what do I owe God? What's so important about this? He created everything. That's what's so important about this. We are in no condition to blame God for the choices and consequences of our lives. Why? Because he has given us existence. 
And he has not made it where we have no choice. He has not made it where we are manipulated into different things. We only allow ourselves to be manipulated. He reigns over all, regardless of power. Daniel talks about that, the fact that these kings, he puts them there. He puts those in power there. It doesn't matter what kind of status we have. It doesn't matter uh, where we are in life. God controls who is in authority. And he chooses when and how to show his mercy. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some people want to have, so, so desire that sense of universalism that says that, you know, God's going to be okay with it. God's provided salvation, so I'm all right. But he chooses when and how to show his mercy. He is the king. Salvation is the gift of his reign. That's what we're thinking about in terms of Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom, of course, overwhelms and outlasts any government. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so Christ's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And we have to ask ourselves, are, are we part of that kingdom? In Acts 3 and verse 19... Peter preaching in Solomon's porch says in Acts 3 and verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Moses was the lawgiver of the old covenant, of course, and Jesus is the lawgiver of the new. And when we recognize this, when we recognize who Christ is and his authority and his rule, it helps us to understand all these things. Finally, heaven will be the rest of his faithful. Again, we're talking about the eternal kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Now see, that is, that is what should be terrifying to our brethren who have not been converted, to our brethren who are just sort of you know, stepping along here and there. Daniel 7:18 The saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever even forever and ever. There's a mutual benefit aspect to this as well. The idea that God has this kingdom and he wants us to be a part of that kingdom and he wants us to rule with him. And that's that's one of the most beautiful aspects of this. So when we think about the kingdom, we need to think about this as as something that is so integral to our understanding of what God wants. The idea of gaining the kingdom. God wants all of us to be saved. He wants you to be saved. And the only way you can be saved is to be part of the kingdom. 
And to be part of the kingdom, you have to give yourself to be ruled by the king. So we have to ask ourselves today, is that what I've done? Have I given myself to be ruled over by the king? Have I given myself completely to that? If there's something that you need to change in your life, we want to encourage you to do that today. And uh, if you find that there's something that you need to confess publicly or if there's something that you simply need the prayers of the saints, please come while we stand and sing.